Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can behold, Lord, you through your scriptures and through the revelation of your gospel that you have sparked in our hearts when we confessed our sin and placed faith in you. And as your servant Isaiah beheld the thrice holy God worshipped by the celestial creatures where your train filled the temple, he was struck immediately with his own wickedness, crying out, I am a man of unclean lips. And so were we, O Father, but the coal of the gospel has touched us, and the Spirit has done a mighty work in our hearts, resurrecting us from the dead, and giving us, Lord, the mouth and the words to praise you, as you have transformed our lives. Lord, we thank you for this miracle of salvation. We pray, Lord, as we approach your word this day, that we would do so with reverence, with fear, with gratitude, with excitement, with the expectation that in these pages, Lord, is contained everything pertaining to life and godliness that can quicken us for the great privilege of the call of the gospel to shine forth your glory, Lord, and to tell others to show forth your name through our lives changing in light of this truth to look more like Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We pray that you would accomplish this through the proclamation of your word, God, that our hearts would be transformed, conformed to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great opportunity we have to submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture this day. I pray that it is before the Lord and His throne that we come with reverence and fear this day as we behold His immutable Word. To do exactly that this morning, I encourage you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 70. And these five verses will be our text today, Psalm 70. The title of this morning's message is Uncommon Ground. You're probably more familiar with the phrase common ground, and it's just the negation of that. That's the intent of the theme of our message today. That is to say, Psalm 70 highlights the differences between the rebellious and the righteous, between the worldview, the mentality, the heart condition of unbelief, and the confession and the confidence of belief in the true gospel. That is to say, we have uncommon ground as believers with the world indeed. There could not be a more stark contrast between being outside of the fellowship of the Father and within the realm of His good graces, when you really analyze the great eternal chasm that separates the wicked sinner from a righteous and holy God. There is some common ground which we will discuss in our humanity, but certainly when it comes to our great salvation, we have nothing in common with the world. Would you stand with me with your Bible open to Psalm 70, and let us behold these scriptures today. Standing out of reverence for the Holy Word of God, we receive these words as from the throne room itself under the title to the choir master of David for the memorial offering. Psalm 70 verse 1. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame, who say, Aha, 
Aha! May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Verse 5, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O God, do not delay. This is the infallible word of Christ. You may be seated. In short, the aim of this sermon today is that we may take the gospel seriously. That is, that Psalm 70 would sharpen the distinctions in our heart and mind between the rebellious and the righteous in our understanding and appreciation that we may, as a result, take the gospel that much more seriously. Seriously in two ways. Deep, abiding gratitude and appreciation for our own salvation that our praise, such as we offered already this morning, would overflow freely with exuberance on account of remembering what God has done in our souls. Because what God has saved us from is so serious and the power of His salvation is so effective. But secondly, that the seriousness of the gospel would be apparent to us inasmuch as we are surrounded by lost people. We are surrounded by those who are hopeless and without God in a wicked world who are careening to their own hellish demise, who, if God does not intervene sovereignly, presenting the roadblock of truth in their way, they will head fully uh, with both, uh, uh, they will they'll head with all their energy and ambitions and motivations to a fiery and eternal end in hell and judgment itself. And so the gospel is serious and we need reminders like Psalm 70 to take it seriously. So let us behold the uncommon ground that separates those who know Christ and who do not in order that we might be reminded of how much of a crisis we have in front of us in the world that is dying that we might offer them the rescue of Christ alone. Psalm 70 is a refrain from Psalm 40. If you look at Psalm 40, it's a longer song, but there are verses toward the end, I believe verses 13 through 17, which are, virg- which are repeated in Psalm 70 almost verbatim. The rest of the psalm contains some messianic allusions and indeed prophecies that are picked up in Hebrews 10. For instance, in Psalm 40 verse 8, we have this, I desire to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Earlier, or uh, following that, I have told the glad news in verse 9 of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, they have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. In verse 6, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. These verses are used with reference to the incarnation and are identified with the Messiah in Hebrews chapter 10. Psalm 40 contains direct messianic fulfillment, as Hebrews 10 recognizes its foretelling of the incarnation. The messianic allusions extend to the rest of Psalm 40, verses 13 through 17 as well, and by extension then Psalm 70. As we recognize the attitude of the unbeliever mirrored in its hatred of Jesus, as we have been reading in Matthew 27 and 28, as we behold the Moment of Christ's crucifixion, the mocking voice of aha, aha, by the Sanhedrin, 
the common folk, and virtually all who gathered at Christ's crucifixion is a direct, refer- or is a direct fulfillment of the language of Psalm 70. In Psalm 40 and Psalm 70, thus stand as counterexamples to the all-too-common tendency in our age of seeking common ground with the world and its enemies and the enemies of Christ that inhabit it. We recognize the attitude of the unbeliever mirrored in its hatred of Jesus, not to mention his lineage, uh, physically, meaning David, and spiritually, meaning all who are united to him by faith. The attitude of the unbeliever in Psalm 70 lets us in behind the scenes in spite of whatever nice exterior we might see in our day-to-day lives. Underneath is a seething hatred and animosity that was expressed towards David in our text today directly because he, in the lineage of Christ, was the object of the Lord's work and calling, anointing, and affection. But we ourselves, spiritually, as the lineage of, of Abraham, if you will, united by Christ in faith, are no stranger to that animosity as well. And in this day and age, we are not so apt to recognize that deep di- difference and the, and the distinct battle lines that are drawn between those who are in the kingdom of light and those who are in the kingdom of darkness. In our age, we are more apt to seek common ground with the world and the enemies of Christ because it is difficult to live as a marginalized, tiny minority in a world that does not welcome us, especially in their values and the things that they treasure, that they lift up, and that they hold as the apex of human achievement, identity, and so on. There are some things that we do have in common as human beings with the world. For instance, we are all born in sin with Adam, and Adam, as the covenant head of all human beings who have ever been born aside from Christ Himself, we have that in common. We have this in common, that we are all made in the image of God, unbeliever and believer alike. Also, we are all without excuse as creation itself, and the suppressed law of God written on our own consciousness testifies. So these are points of contact that we do have with all human beings that we encounter in life. But these points of contact I just mentioned are not the popular ones. They're not the ones that are most often emphasized in our world today. Instead, we often seek to minimize our peculiarity as believers in a world of self-worshipping unbelief. And often this comes by way of compromise, false ecumenism, and syncretism, trying to mix that which is uh, virtually opposed, that which is in every way opposed to one another, and ecumenism, trying to find common ground with religious ideas and ideals and other worldviews when in fact they are mutually exclusive. And this is more the tendency of our day because it is hard to live at odds with the majority. It's a tendency that is worth, in fact, fighting in every age. This was true in ancient Rome. Edward Gibbon, the great historian who wrote the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire around 1776 or so, this quote came across my listening this week and I thought it was apropos. He said of that doomed state, that is the late Roman Empire, he said the various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people 
equally true. By the philosopher, equally false, and by the magistrate, equally useful. I submit to you that insightful observation about the reigning ideas and worldview of ancient Rome is very true, it's true in many ways of our culture today. The various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world, there are various modes of worship that yet prevail today. And for the average individual, they say, you know, that's true for you, this is true for me, or I am bound to be tolerant of whatever you think is important, and so I really don't have any bone to pick with, with uh, what you think. And in so doing, most people consider all these ideas equally true. The philosopher, the more erudite thinker, the scientist perhaps in our age, they might consider them all poppycock, all equally false. The magistrate, that is the state, considers them all equally useful. That is to say, if we can let everybody think whatever they want to, but find common unity in assigning their loyalty to the same state, then the state becomes God. It's the binding element. It's what holds society together. And thus it serves its own purposes. That was the way it was at the fall of the Roman Empire. It led to its demise. And so we see some of these same sentiments expressed in our day. Men sought then what they try to do now. To flatten out the distinctions and find consensus in idolatry of their common experience. Seeking to transcend God. Just like the lie of original sin. It's little wonder that the one religion Rome could not tolerate was the only power holding the pieces together when the state imploded. The one religion that Rome could not tolerate, the one religion in many ways in our day that is not tolerated, was the only power holding the disparate pieces together when she imploded. What was that religion? The true religion, the only true faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who has the universal answer to all of man's problems, stemming from that source, that principal source of the problems of the world, His salvation addressing our sin. Psalm 70 is designed to help us fight this impulse to flatten out the differences, to live without distinction, to make peace without the cross, in a world of hostility. Psalm 70 helps us to avoid that temptation. It helps us to fight in our time against this impulse. So let us look to these words today. Under this heading, mapping the pronouns of Psalm 70, we discover a few things. And It occurred to me as I was looking at this text that if you pay attention to the pronouns, you find a symmetry and a structure in Psalm 70. For instance, let them, them as a pronoun, be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Well, that, that, let, or that uh, let them and then followed by who is repeated three times. So the pronouns provide a certain structure. Let them who such and such, or, or let them be put to shame, so let them incur something who seek my life. And then again in verse 2, let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame, who say, aha, aha. When we kind of map these pronouns in Psalm 70, we discover something. Uh, first, generally speaking, this is true of not only Psalm 70, but many if not all of the Psalms, there is a symmetry of poetic expression. This is poetry, after all. 
we find as we look at the psalm closely in the example I just gave and more that we'll see in the text, there is a symmetry of poetic expression. But that symmetry, that beauty as a literary form also serves to clarify its timeless message. And this is a philosophy of art, if I might pause for a brief aside, that the Psalms presents to us. There is beauty in what serves to clarify. Even that is counterintuitive to the values of our day. What is artistic and what is valued today as great expressions of the human soul in our culture? Not that which clarifies timeless truth, but that which introduces moral ambiguity, that which explores the periphery of morality, that which causes the mind to wander into areas outside the prescribed covenant boundaries of things that God has defined as holy and righteous and true, of good report, things that are virtuous and praiseworthy. The Psalms provide for us a testimony against the artwork of the perverse artwork of our day. And they stand against it by presenting a symmetry of poetic expression, clarifying timeless truths of the gospel. Let us note how they do that in Psalm 70. How this psalm provides for us a structure that is beautiful and clarifies the gospel. First of all, let's consider the characteristics of Messiah's detractors. The characteristics of Messiah's detractors. Secondly, let us consider the consequences for Messiah's detractors. And then that's the one side, unbelief. And then on the other side, the opposite side, the remaining half of the psalm, considers those two aspects with respect to Messiah's dependence. So we have the characteristics of Messiah's dependence and the consequences for Messiah's dependence. To put it a little bit more simply, we could say this. What are, the, that, what are those things that define unbelief? Or those things that uh, are markers or pointers of those who despise uh, David at this time, but ultimately Jesus Christ? And then what are the consequences for living that life in contradiction to God's truth? And then again on the flip side, what, are the identi- what is the identity of those who trust in the Messiah? And what are the consequences for trusting the Messiah? If we look at this basic structure, we see a beauty to Psalm 70, but we also glean from it the uh, realization that we must take the gospel seriously and draw important distinctions that delineate the place where the believer stands in distinction to the place where the unbeliever, uh, in fact, uh, sets up his camp of ideas. First of all, the characteristics of Messiah's detractors. These are listed in verses 2 and 3. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. The let them and who construction. Whatever follows the who is the characteristic of the the Messiah detractors, those who oppose the anointed one, those who have made war with David and his kingdom as God has sovereignly decreed and ordained. That is to say that those who are enemies of Christ, they seek my life, it says. Who is speaking in the first person? David and Jesus himself. But by extension, even those who associate with Christ, with David as 
the uh, prefigured Christ, with Christ as the incarnate Son of God, and those are, who are in union with Him. That is to say, those who are enemies of the cross seek the life of those who find their identity in the cross. They seek their life in, let me suggest, two ways. Number one, there is a certain deep-seated rebellion against the Lord. And as a visceral expression of their original sin in hatred to the terms that God has laid out that are inalterable, they take out their revenge, they take out their anger, they take out their animosity against the object of the Lord's affections. It is no mystery that abortion is such a ubiquitous sin in our land. It is no mystery that murder has increased proportionally to a society all through history, leaving the ground of God's Word. Why? Because God Himself has decreed that man is made in His image. And if we so hate the Lord, if we hate His truth, if we set ourselves in opposition to Him, we will take out our anger and our animosity and our resentment on the image of God because it's the closest thing that we can do to kill God, to get back at Him. And so we see this pattern all through Scripture. We've mentioned it recently in the hatred and anger and resentment that Pharaoh and the fear that Pharaoh took out on the Hebrews when he killed uh, many of the Hebrew boys and threw them into the Nile. We see this pattern repeated at the coming of Christ Jesus into this world. It's as if there was an undercurrent even in the heart of the uh, wicked that knew something was on the horizon. The malevolent and evil forces of wickedness were all stirred up and agitated. And how did they express their animosity and hatred to the Lord? How did their sin take shape and form? Well, in the case of Herod, it took out the little boys in Bethlehem, trying to destroy the competitor to his glory, trying to eradicate any threat to his idol, trying to take out against God Himself His anger and resentment for being uh, in the place that He was. So the characteristics of the Messiah's detractors are that they seek the life of those who are associated with the Lord, those who are associated with Christ. This is true of Christ. This is true of Christians. We should expect persecution. Hasn't Christ told us as much? In Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are you when they persecute you and say all kinds of things against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There is uncommon ground that we have between a world of wicked and rebellious unbelief and where the believer stands. Another way to say this is, in one sense, it is encouraging, encouraging when there is enough Christ visible in our lives for the world to despise if they do not repent. There are two reactions to the believer living overtly and forthrightly sharing his faith. One is to despise and to resent it. The other is to repent and join our ranks. We pray that that second eventuality would be the case for all that we share out of overflowing grace and compassion, the message of the truth of the gospel. Yet the reality remains for those who see a testimony of Christ in you, who choose not to repent of their sin. 
not to humble themselves before the sovereignty of God, not to submit to His Word as an authority over them. For them, there is a deep-seated antinomy. There is a uh, deep-seated rejection of the work of Christ in you, and this is something that we can expect in our culture today. The second construction in our text builds on this point. The characteristics of the Messiah's detractors are that they seek the life of the anointed, but they also desire their hurt. Again in verse 2, the second half, let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Again, what follows the pronoun who is the characteristic of the, of the Messiah detractor, if you will, of unbelief. There are those who desire my hurt, David says. Again, David is speaking as an emissary, of an, as an agent of the Word of God. He understands that the reason people oppose his kingship and his rule and his authority isn't because of geopolitical conflict at the root and base. It isn't even because of jealousy of neighboring nations that want to extend their empire. There's something more deeply seated in the hatred of those who seek his hurt. That hatred was expressed in Saul who pursued him and resented the anointing on David's life. That hatred was, was expressed in the countries that were pagan and doubling down in their wickedness that made war against God's anointed, against David and the agency that he represented. Why did they desire his hurt? They desired his hurt because they had set their face against the revelation of the Lord. They hated the word and work of God. Now, why did they hate it so much? And The word of God is an offense to us because it points out our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses, and our sins. When the blessing of God and His favor was upon Israel, there was this deep-seated, visceral awareness in the people that surrounded them of jealousy. Why has God shown His favor on them? And why are my uh, provisions not overflowing, barns filled with plenty, and the law that provides that decency and order? Now, some countries looked at this expression of God's favor upon His particular people, and they were attracted to it, and they came to see if the rumors of Solomon's wisdom were true. And so the queen of Sheba arrived in humility to behold the glory of the Lord. But for other nations, for other people, for other individuals, they saw this as an unfair disadvantage, and in jealousy, they raged against the favor of the Lord, much like Cain did Abel. In despising the fact that God accepted his sacrifice, Abel's and not his own, and so he took it out against the life of his brother. Why did Abel or why did Cain desire to hurt his brother? It's because Psalm 70 is true. The characteristic of those who do not place their faith in their Messiah, perhaps trust their own works, perhaps trust their own man-made religion, perhaps trust their own efforts alone. When they see them falling short, they think it isn't fair, and so they react in anger. There's a couple examples of this that I noticed this week in the news. I don't know if some of you heard audio or saw some video of Bernie Sanders, a popular senator. Indeed, he was a candidate for president for the Democratic Party this last go-around. He was cross-examining a political appointee, and he was bringing up things that concerned him that he thought would disqualify this person from serving in political office in our land. 
and he chose to cite from a paper that that man had written as a graduate of Wheaton College, which was supportive of the statement of faith of his Christian university. And he said in this paper something to the effect that Islam is a false religion, that the God of Islam is not the God of Christianity, and therefore every Muslim stands condemned before Jesus Christ must repent of his idolatry and sin and place faith in the one true God. Well, there was a visceral reaction uh, in the mind of Bernie Sanders to this, and he brought it up and he said, how is this not, quote, Islamophobic? And the man rightly responded, sir, I am a Christian. And he tried to defend his position on the grounds of his own faith. After repeating that phrase several times, the senator who was cross-examining him was visibly perturbed. He could hear it in his voice. I understand that you are a Christian. He reacted very violently. And although he didn't go to blows, we live in a more, at least apparently, civilized set of circumstances in our politics today. Nevertheless, underneath the surface, when it comes to the war of ideas, you can see that in the mind of the ungodly, those who embrace the secularism of our day, those who want to extend the boundaries of tolerance to include every aberrant perversion, but will not extend the boundaries, the tent of tolerance, to include the exclusive Christ-professing Christian, they have a deep-seated rebellion against the Lord and expresses itself in the realm of ideas. And it would not be a comfortable place to be, right there on the hot seat, in front of all these people who represent the powerful rulers of our nation, to have to defend yourself under those conditions. But the Spirit is sufficient to give us the ability to do so. And something rose up within me as I heard it. And I thought, Lord, bless the confession of that man and may others join him. It took but one Paul, one Apostle Paul, to confound the leaders of his day when he had an uncompromising testimony to the authority of Christ and his word before Felix, Agrippa, and Caesar, and so on. And though they counted him a fool, and though they despised him and shouted, aha, aha, in so many words, nevertheless, there were those moments as Paul stood firm when they said you would persuade me even to be a Christian. Mouths were silenced before the proclamation of the authority and glory of Jesus Christ. And so the battle lines are drawn. Psalm 70 shows us that we have uncommon ground with the principalities and powers and rulers of our day even if they claim to be paragons of virtue and compassion, you know, loving the poor and the little guy and doing all that they can to be the virtual political Mother Teresa of our age. It's all a thin veneer of self-righteousness. And the gospel is offensive in the ear of the secular do-gooder of our day. But let us embrace the opportunity because a warning is the appropriate response to someone who's up to a blind man about to rush off a cliff. Could you come over and have a word with me? There's something important I'd like to share. That's not the correct response to a blind man walking toward a cliff. Stop! Stop! There is danger in front of you. You're careening to your demise. In our culture, in our nation, we are on the cliff uh, in, in so many ways that the appropriate response is the siren sound of the gospel. Stop! Stop! There is a heaven to gain, but you are headed headlong, faster and faster with foot on the accelerator toward a hell that you ought to shun. The characteristics of the Messiah detractors, they seek my life, they desire my hurt. 
They say, aha, aha. This is a reference that is picked up directly. Turn with me in the Gospels. Turn with me to Mark 15. In Psalm 70, verse 3, let them turn back because of their shame, who say, aha, aha. Now, the messianic language and force of Psalm 70 and the continuity of the Scriptures emphasize when we see the connections to the Gospel picked up in Jesus' own experience when He hung on the cross. This will be familiar to you from our study in Matthew 27, where all the mockers surround the cross. But Mark is even more uh, particular in his record relating the circumstances to this very psalm. In Mark 15, we read of these moments in verse 29. Those who passed by, that is those who passed by Jesus, derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, and we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. In this passage, we see the language of Psalm 70 recapitulating itself in the experience of the Son of David. David heard from the Christ mockers, aha, aha, what does that idiom or phrase mean? Aha is an exclamation of ridicule, of exulting insolence. So if you imagine toddlers yelling at each other, sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, na, 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 I can't hear you, I know you are, but what am I? You know, those petulant and absolute immature expressions of anger that, voc- that come out in these incoherent vocal signs of absolute disdain. That's what's in view here. Aha, aha. People making fools of themselves, throwing temper tantrums like three-year-olds in the face of the Messiah as He is crucified for their transgressions and sins. Boy, the battle lines, the distinctions between the two camps are so sharp at the cross. We see them distinct in Psalm 70 as well. We see this connection as the Messiah is enduring the wrath of the Christ-haters, even as He is in His most vulnerable state of all. James Frame wrote a commentary in the 19th century, I believe, on the Psalms. He's quoted as saying the following, He who deserved the hallelujahs of an intelligent universe and the special hosannas of all the children of men had first to anticipate and then to endure from the mouths of the very rebels who he came to bless to save the malicious taunting of aha, aha. He that is Christ who deserved the hallelujahs of an intelligent universe and the special hosannas of all the children of men, not just those who cried hosanna in the courtyard of the temple just days before his crucifixion, not just the hallelujahs of us as the highest of sentient creatures, of moral agents, but indeed the heavens, the earth, the whole cosmos, it ought to rise up in their hallelujahs, praising the Lord, giving Him glory, even as nature does. In spite of us and our willful rebellion, the heavens still declare the glory of God. All of these things were, uh, were to lift up their praises before the Lord in a universe that is acknowledging the truth. 
And the special hosannas of the children of men ought to consciously proclaim from child to adult that he was king of kings and lord of lords. Yet Christ had first to anticipate that he knew this was coming. And then to endure from the mouths of the very rebels who he came to bless and to save. He had to endure the malicious taunting of aha, aha. Thank you, Jesus Christ, our Lord, for enduring this hatred and this petulance, this insolence, this ridicule, this despising and this mocking for our sake. Because we recognize that we once were in that frame of mind as rebellious prodigals, as insolent children, as those with a three-year-old mentality. Uh, said that a few times, it's, I hate to disparage three-year-olds. Some of them wouldn't even do that. Of the most infantile, petulant behavior, cursing without uh, uh, any, log any logic whatsoever, their very salvation. That's the idea behind aha, aha. And that's the kind of attitude, again, that characterizes the detractors of the Messiah. Secondly, as we map the pronouns of Psalm 70, we discover not only the characteristics of Jesus' detractors, but also the consequences for their behavior, the consequences for that attitude, the consequences for their rebellion against the Lord. Let's notice these. Let them, so whatever follows them is the consequences. Let them, in verse 2, be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. What are the consequences of those who seek the life of those who are associated with Christ? They will be put to shame and confusion. The second, the second reference in verse 2, let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. So what is the consequence? Again, after let them, let them be turned back and brought to dishonor. So put to shame and confusion. Turned back and brought to dishonor. And then final reference, verse three, 3 again. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. So turn back because of their shame. Those are the consequences for opposing the Messiah. First of all, they will be put to shame and confusion. There are numerous historical references in Scripture where this plays out in examples in real time. In Judges chapter 7, verse 19 through 23, you'll recall this very principle in effect as Gideon raises up an unlikely band of 300 to rout the Midianites. He doesn't do so by a calculated military campaign that would make sense in, under normal circumstances. And instead, the reason that Gideon and his forces are victorious is because of the consequences for setting your mind and heart against the purposes, the people ultimately against Christ, that is the ultimate end of all God-haters. He puts them to shame and confusion. The Midianites were routed. They were put to shame and put to confusion. The weapons in their hands became the destructive tools in their own, as it were, suicidal, frantic, fearful, uh, uh, fearful activity as the armies turned on each other. In that day, the Lord illustrated the principle that we see in Psalm 70, that all, the ultimate end of all who ultimately deny Him is that they will be put to shame and confusion. The very tools that they fashioned 
in their mind by vain philosophy, and their hands by weapons of war, and their speech by carefully crafted rhetoric. Those very tools that they fashioned in order to oppose the Lord, to try to make Christians look stupid, will one day be turned against them, and they will be shown to be foolish. They will be confused and put to shame. Another example of this comes in 2 Samuel 18, verses 9 through 18. Uh, Absalom, the son of David, who did not follow as a spiritual son in the lineage of Christ, but actually in his rebellion, opposed the revelation of the Lord that he knew by way of his father's testimony and set his mind against the purposes of God and set his face against God's anointed, something that David was loath to do even against Paul after he was apostate. Absalom begins to rise up to seek his father's throne. Absalom was a an amazing and impressive charismatic figure that had that look of electability about him. He had this flowing hair that was described as something he was proud of and set him apart and distinguished him uh, head and shoulders above the rest. And he had a compelling way to gather around him a coup to overthrow his father. What happened? The very thing that was his idol and his gravitas, his persona, that which compelled the attention of the masses hung him by his hair as he fled, confused and shamed because of the judgment that came upon him for opposing God's anointed. And as Absalom hung by his hair between heaven and earth, and later as a monument of stones was piled over his body, he served as an object lesson, as a memorial that those who are the Messiah's detractors will ultimately be put to shame and confusion. We see this in our day again, perhaps most obviously in the realm of ideas. We see on the one hand that people find identity in championing a small and what they think is underprivileged and victimized group, let's say feminism for instance. And then out of the mouth of the same fools they say that people can disregard the created norms of identity and choose any one of 70 plus genders. How is it special to be a woman if I can self-identify as one? How is it special to be anything in life anymore if all these categories are made effectively meaningless when men throw off the bonds of God's created order in His holy word and embrace the kind of violent perversion that we see populating the realms of what we used to call higher academia in colleges and universities across this land. What is going on? We have complete, unhinged, incoherent, self-destructive idiocy coming out of our institutions which are supposed supposed to raise up the elites and the influential, well-rounded, with character and concerned leaders of the next generation. What is going on as violence erupts in the street and we have no idea who we even are? God is putting us to shame and confusion. He's taking what was our most proud example of rebellion against him and reducing it to a monument of foolishness. It is, after all, as the scriptures go on to say, the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. In due course, in God's judgment, his foolishness is made manifest for the world to see. And the laughingstock of all who oppose the Lord becomes more and more obvious, even 
as I see it this day, there are those, by God's grace, perhaps a field ripening unto harvest, even within these pagan echelons that are beginning to think, what are the foundations of life anyway? We are fools. We are stupid. We are self-contradictory, self-loathing. We're committing social suicide. What are the foundations anyway? Right there. When that question frantically rushes in to the mindset of the unbeliever, let us be there with the gospel. I know what the foundations are because I stand on the word of God, on the cornerstone Jesus Christ, and so do you. If you're a believer here, you need not be ashamed. You need not be intimidated. Look at the fools who oppose the Lord this day and understand one simple, treasured, profound truth of Scripture is worth immeasurably more than the nonsense that's proclaimed from these bully pulpits and megaphones of absolute stupidity that we have in our nation this day. Stand upon the Word of God. Don't be afraid to draw those distinctions. Don't look for ways to baptize the lunacy, but, in, but indeed point it out as such and point people to the true foundation, to Christ. God puts the unbeliever to shame and confusion unless and until he repents. The uh, second consequence for the Messiah's detractors along these lines is that they are turned back and they are brought to dishonor. And they, again, in the case of Christ, think of Judas' blood versus Jesus' blood. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but think of the legacy, the testimony of Jesus' blood. His blood was spilled in an act of humiliating uh, torture and where he, his blood was supposed to be, if the nefarious parties had their way, a monument to their power and his weakness. And so when Christ was crucified on the implement of excruciating torture and public humiliation, it was supposed to reaffirm in the eyes of the population that we as the Sanhedrin and Rome, we maintain order in this society and this upstart is under our thumb. That's not what happened. The blood of Christ, the legacy of the blood of Christ became the most powerful a redemptive, enduring, and strong, absolute grounds of hope, salvation, order, reconciliation for all who are in Him for all time. That's why you are in this room today. It's because the legacy of the shed blood of Christ turned the intention of the wicked ones on its head. And what they meant for evil was turned around to dishonor, and instead the opposite of their intention was the effect of their actions. Meanwhile, Judas died too. His blood was spilled by his own hand. And what happened? A field was purchased. It was called the field of blood. It became a place of refuse. Judas himself has become a byword. We associate him with, and he was seeking to profit himself at the expense of Christ. No different than Pilate, no different than the priests of the day, no different than the pompous, arrogant uh, fools and leaders of that hour were trying to do. They're trying to benefit themselves at the expense of Christ's blood. But like Judas, the Pharisee and all who joined him were turned back. They were brought to dishonor. Their legacy is one of contempt, of a byword, of a curse. But those who trust in the blood of Christ, the opposite is true. We join a long line of the redeemed who will move on from this place to populate the realms of glory to give Him praise forevermore. Those again who turn their face against the Messiah are turned back because of their shame. 
Psalm 7.15 says as much. Proverbs 26.26 says as much. It describes it in this way that those who try to trip up God's purposes in their life, they dig a pit, but they themselves fall into it. These are the consequences of Messiah's detractors. Let us go to the characteristics of Messiah's dependence, those who depend on Him. Verse 4, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. The characteristics of those who depend on the Messiah are as follows. There are those who seek Him. Who seek you is language here. May all who seek you. Characteristic of those who trust in God's word and God's revealed Christ are those who seek Him. Romans 3.11 says there is none who seek the Lord, not even one. How do we reconcile the two? Well, we know that the act of seeking, that anyone has a desire, true and authentic desire, legitimate desire, sincere uh, seeking of the Lord, that that is a sovereign work of God Himself. That is not something that is rooted in our affections, but indeed is God intervening by the power of His Holy Spirit. Thus, God does have seekers, but they are the ones who don't seek Him of their own reason, their own means, their own accord, their own experience, their own study, their own scientific analysis, their own uh, poll or their own ideas, uh, their, their own poll that they take of the majority or their own ideas. Those who seek the Lord are the ones who are moved by God's sovereign grace to do so. David was in this category. Psalm 27, 7 through 8 tells us much. Psalm 69 as well, verse 6, talks about the heart of the seeker, the one who recognizes that his deepest uh, needs will only be satisfied when they are fulfilled by the one who has the power to do so in Christ. The characteristics of those who depend on the Messiah are the ones who seek Him for every want, every need, every desire, chief among them, salvation from their own sin. But more than that, and building on that for their identity, Building on that, as we read uh, last week of Moses, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Because he sought the Lord and he sought his identity in Christ. We saw also that Moses rejected all the wealth of Egypt, though it was an untold riches. And why? Because he saw a greater reward. Moses, saw, Moses was willing to count the cost of following Christ, that is, suffer the reproach of Christ because of a greater reward. He sought the Messiah. And finally, Moses was not afraid of the king. Why? Because he sought the greater king still and knew that he was only safe when he was in his good graces, when he was a citizen in good standing in his kingdom. And so in faith, he slaughtered the lamb and put that spilled blood on his doorposts and the destroyer passed over his house. And the house of all who trusted the slain lamb, the propitiatory sacrifice for salvation from their own sin. In that act, they were seeking the Lord. These were characteristics of Messiah's dependence, those who trust in Jesus. The characteristics of Messiah's dependence today are those who seek Him, who long to be here. Why are we here today? Because Christ has died. Why, do, why are we here today? Because we love our salvation. Why do we gather today? Because it's only natural that people congregate and fellowship around that which they value most. Thus, we are the assembly of the called out ones who have been saved by Jesus Christ alone. It is only natural that we seek our greatest desire and share it with each other as we join in our communion this morning and worship before the Lord. Bringing up the second characteristic, 
characteristic of those who are dependent on the Messiah. They love His salvation. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. The last characteristic of Messiah dependence is they are poor and needy. Verse 5, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. Those who depend on the Messiah know that they need Him. They depend on Him because they are insufficient of themselves. They are not set apart because of their superior intellect or ability, their great you know, uh, um, natural bent to understand important things. They're super spiritual. They're wired a certain way. Or even we're privileged to you know, study at a great school or whatever, no matter how theologically sound it is. Those who are dependent on Christ recognize that they are poor and needy. There are those who, in the heart of the Beatitudes, can say with Jesus out of Matthew 5, I am poor in spirit, because they recognize that the poor in spirit are blessed to receive the kingdom of God. Blessed are those, our Lord continues, who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so it goes. That idea was, had not been unprecedented in the Lord's revelation when Christ spoke these words. It had preceded Him as He spoke His words through His servant David. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. In closing this morning, what are the consequences for dependency on the Messiah. We've seen the characteristics and the consequences of the rebel. What are the characteristics? We've mentioned those. But what are the consequences of the redeemed? There are again three things in our text today. First, they rejoice and are glad. Verse 4, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. There is a bubbling over satisfaction. There is a deep and abiding joy. There is a fulfillment and a and a love and appreciation that expresses itself in sincere worship that a believer exhibits as a consequence of his dependence on the Messiah. There is something so peaceful, so refreshing, so reassuring, and so grace-imbuing about admitting your weakness, confessing your sin, and placing yourself at the mercy of a sovereign yet loving God who has stooped so low in his condescension as to present himself in the second person of the Trinity, Christ in flesh as a sacrifice for your sin. Thus, how much love can overflow in our hearts when we realize that he, God himself, first loved us. It is a love that David describes as rejoicing and gladness in him. The consequences of those who depend on the Messiah is that they are those who say evermore, God is great. They say evermore, God is great. And the key phrase there that indicates the great value and the great promise of being in Christ is evermore. That means eternally David confesses faith that he will proclaim the goodness of the Lord. David confesses that Psalm 70 will be sung long after he is dead by his own lips in glory, joining with the throng of those of the redeemed who will echo forth, having been reconciled to their created purpose in the first place, praises to the thrice holy God that Isaiah saw just a glimpse of. 
David will join with us and all who are redeemed evermore to confess God is great, as our future is eternal and secure by virtue of the precious value of the blood shed to secure it. And finally this morning, the consequences for dependency on the Messiah are swift help and deliverance. I am poor and needy, verse 5, hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This echoes verse 1, and again the symmetry, the poetic beauty, and the clarity of the message go hand in hand. We see this by the brackets or bookends at the beginning and end of this psalm. David opens this song by saying, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. He closes it by saying, You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This is the theme. These are the brackets of assurance around David's confession, if you will. It is notable to see the reference he uses with respect to God. You'll notice in your Bible, all caps, O Lord. At the end, again, all capitals, O Lord. This in the English language is the way that the translators denote the tetragrammaton, which means four consonants, Yahweh, that precious and most hallowed name of the Lord. That name that denotes His unchanging, eternal self-existence. That name that came into the consciousness of the redeemed in redemptive history when God revealed Himself out of that burning bush to Moses and changed the course of all redemptive history, revealing Himself to Moses as the I am that I am. The forever covenant-keeping God. When all else is shaken, when all else is uncertain, when the rest of life and our experience in this fallen, wicked, decaying world by so many measures is shame and confusion, where can we stand? Where do we find assurance and firm footing? In Yahweh. Yahweh revealed in flesh in Christ who was Yahweh come, fully God, fully man. Our experience with the truth of Psalm 70 eclipses even the experience of its original author in the sense that as we read Scripture, we read the fulfillment of these very words. And so, can we trust, as David did, that there is swift help and deliverance for us? Absolutely. This life may be full of suffering for you, depending on God's decree. It certainly is for many of our Christian brothers and sisters on this globe. Even the United Nations and other humanitarian so-called groups are forced to admit Christians are among, if not the most persecuted religious contingency on the globe today. But what do we know? Compared to eternity, this life is a vapor. It's a wisp. It's a breath. It's a moment. It disappears just like a sneeze. But afterwards is eternity. And on the other side of this short life, no matter its suffering, difficulty, trial, anguish of soul and body, is swift help and deliverance. We know this by the testimony and seal of the Holy Spirit inside that gives us the reassurance when we look to Christ. We are counted among the beloved. We are saints and members of the household of God. We are saved. We are the born again. We are those who will not die but live forever because God Yahweh, 
our Lord has so bound us to Him that His experience will be ours. That is to say, in Christ our old man died and in Christ we were resurrected. And so swift help and deliverance is just on the threshold for us. Oftentimes it comes provisionally in answers to prayer and I'm sure everyone in this room who is a believer can testify to that experience. But even if there are answers to prayers that are long-standing, at least from our perspective, we know that swift help and deliverance is just around the corner. Notice the juxtaposition of these two phrases. David says, I am poor and needy. But then he hastens to add, you are my help and my deliverer. This is the gospel. Recognizing that I am poor and needy, broken, a sinner in desperate need of salvation. But you are Yahweh. The eternal covenant keeper, the unchanging self-existent, I am that I am, who never, who in him is no darkness or shadow of turning, who never breaks his promises. You are my help and my deliverer. This is the ground upon which we stand. Remember, as we close our thoughts on these verses today, that the unbeliever knows nothing of this ground. This is uncommon ground. Yet as we said at the beginning, that ought to move us to take the gospel that much more seriously. Understand that although there's superficial smiles plastered across the faces of the self-indulgent you know, patrons of Vanity Fair out in this world, there is nothing under their feet, nothing eternal, nothing satisfactory, nothing reassurance, reassuring. There is only self-deception and delusion. And the message to those is repent and join me on this uncommon, unique, and exclusive solid ground. That is the message of the gospel. Drawing these sharp distinctions by applying the word of God will help us to be faithful in proclaiming it. And as we said at the beginning, it will help us to be faithful in worshiping and thanking the Lord for it. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your holy word. We thank you that these truths, Lord, are absolute and certain, steadfast, immovable. They are the absolute bedrock upon which to build a life and to trust in eternal life. We thank you that you have delivered them to us such that by the Spirit's power they can be known to the believer. Lord, instruct us in the Word today to appreciate them so that we live faithfully to you in obedience and praise and instruct us in these categories that we might be faithful in proclaiming them to others. In the holy name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Praise the Lord.